Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. Finding new plant species in Wyndham County. We talked to botanist Brian Connolly of Eastern Connecticut State University about the new plant discoveries and what it means for the area. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. We live in a world where we think we know everything and have seen everything, but the reality is our world still has many surprises for us, and those surprises come in a variety of forms. The flora and fauna around us is constantly changing, due to human activities and also due to climate change. So it's important for us to keep an eye on our natural world and see how and why it's changing and whether that has a positive or negative effect. I recently caught up with Brian Connolly, Assistant Professor of Biology at Eastern Connecticut State University, to talk about a recently published study he and others have put together about plant discoveries in Wyndham County to help update an important herbarium, which is a database of local plant species. Brian, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. So exciting finds. I mean, it seems that we live in a world where very rarely do we get that wow moment, but you've been having a wow moment out in the fields of Wyndham. Tell us about it. Yes. So I uh, did a study and update of the flora of Wyndham County with my colleague, Dr. Uh, Lisa Stanley from the New England Botanical Club. Yeah, actually, there's lots of wow moments in in field botany. There's always a new discovery that you can find. There's new species, either native or invasive or endangered, uh, if you just kind of go out and look for them. Now, you did, uh, I mean, you basically were recently published by the New England Botanical Society. And as you say, this was a co-author with with Lisa Stanley, the curator of NEBS Herbarium. Why is it important for things like this to be updated? Well, there's, there's a tradition of collecting botanical specimens in in the Northeast. And people have used specimens, you know, from the 1850s, like Henry David Thoreau's in Massachusetts, and um, have been able to show the the, uh, trends from uh, climate change. So you can actually see the flowering date, you know, earlier as the season warms up. Also, these types of inventories let us know what's here currently and uh, what's disappearing, what's coming into the area. So we can have a baseline and then compare it to the past. And hopefully people in the future will look at things that we've done now and be able to compare the flora and uh, see how the species have been changing. Now, understand from the information that we've been given that the um, this study occurred over four days back in 2020, obviously uh, with yourself and uh, Lisa and the help of Eastern students. Just talk us through a little bit about what you actually did, because it's, it's fascinating because you went everywhere within obviously Wyndham County. Yes, I, I mean, we could have covered a lot more ground, but we tried to get kind of a sample of habitats. And so we went, you know, agricultural fields, city parks, woodlands, wetlands, 
And uh, we basically just collected what we found in, in flour. And we, we also had a list of uh, kind of a hit list of things that we're interested in finding that we thought might be in the area and, and never recorded. So basically, we just met in the field and we, we did uh, some searches and collected anything that was in an identifiable stage. And so... From that uh, collection, I understand that uh, that was what 319 different species were collected. Talk us through a little bit, obviously not through the whole 319, but I know that a certain amount were native and some were introduced. Just to talk to us a little bit about some of that. Yeah, so several of the species were actually never before documented in Wyndham County. I think it was 49 species or so. And of that, over 70% of those were introduced. So they're from elsewhere in the world. Uh, So they're not from the Northeast, mostly Europe and Asia. And then uh, we found a small percentage of native plants that haven't been uh, documented before. And then what was really interesting is we actually came across a highly endangered plant, um, the dwarf bulrush, and that's a, a threatened species for the state of Connecticut. And why is that one in danger? Talk to us a little bit about that, because often we hear about things become in danger. Can you give us just like a bit of a background as to why or how they become endangered? Oh, sure, sure. Yeah. So the the dwarf uh, bulrush or uh, Lipocarpha micrantha is is a very small diminutive grass-like plant, you could say. It has a very unique habitat. It grows uh, in sandy places that are wet, um, and so it's usually like the edge of a a river or a pond that generally has a fluctuating water level. And so it has this very specific habitat. And it's also kind of on the edge of its range. A lot of our endangered species in the Northeast are edge of range species uh, that are endangered. They're not really endangered like in the main part of their range, but for the state of Connecticut, uh, it's endangered. And how exciting was it to actually find that? It, 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 it was really cool. I was not expecting it at all. I was out, you know, with my students and we were, we were you know, I was showing them different plants for my biology plants class uh, at, at Eastern. And I was just looking along the shoreline and I said, oh my gosh, here it is. <laughs> and uh, it never been found in the county. And um, so for the, I should say the protected species of Connecticut, it's actually considered threatened. There's three levels of protection, and the, the rarest is actually endangered, and that's one to four populations. And then there's threatened, which is five to nine populations. And then there's special concern, which I can't remember, maybe it's nine to 15 or something. But this is actually a threatened species for the state of Connecticut. So there's somewhere between five and nine populations. But yeah, it was really, it's really cool. It, it, it's this tiny little plant. It's about three inches tall. There's several other species that look like it, but it has this really distinct flowering or fruiting structure that kind of looks like this miniature pine cone. And when you see that little, little tiny pine cone, it's only about, you know, a quarter of a centimeter or something, uh, you know, you've got the species. So it's kind of exciting when you see that really distinct flowering structure on the plant. Now, another thing I understand that you found as well as part of this survey was uh, a discovery of a large invasive from Asia known as Himalayan balsam. Talk to us about that. Yeah, so the, uh, the Himalayan balsam, so it's officially an invasive species. So invasive species are a subset of introduced or aka exotic species. So we have the native flora, which has been here forever, you know, since the glaciers, essentially. 
And then we have this whole group of plants that are that are introduced. And so they can be from, you know, other places in North America, like the West Coast or the Midwest, or they can be from Asia or um, Europe, typically. And so a huge number of our species, uh, you know, probably 40, 50% in Connecticut that have ever been found are actually introduced. But of that, a small subset, about 10% or less even, are, are aggressive. So they're, they take over ecosystems and are problematic for native species. And those are called uh, invasive species. And we actually have a group that officially declares invasive species as the Connecticut invasive plant working group. And um, this Himalayan balsam is an official invasive species and it's prohibited from sale in the state. But we, um, we, were, we were out in the field and along a roadside and we, in um, you know, this wet ditch area, we were not expecting it at all. It's uh, more typical of Northern New England to find this invasive, but there it was, you know, uh, you know, several, several feet tall with, uh, with uh, you know, bright purple flowers. So it was, uh, it was very distinct and it was really uh, interesting to find it. And although you said, uh, you know, you just found this, um, this small amount of it, I mean, I'm guessing from your comments about invasive and that they can take over or also like suppress native plants, it's important for us to know about these things, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So this in our region may or may not be an actual problem, but we kind of have some of these species on our list because they're problematic elsewhere, like our neighbors to the north in, in, in Maine have seen some of this plant. And and so we, uh, it's kind of a preventative measure. So it's sort of like a, we want to have these listed and um, be able to take action if necessary before they really take hold and, and you know, just are unmanageable. So I, I don't think the Himalayan balsam is going to be a, a, a problem in Connecticut. Uh, it may be locally in a few areas, but but we, uh, we, we basically don't want, um, you know, a new Japanese barberry or Japanese knotweed, you know, coming in. And so the, those, those plants are really intractable. So this is kind of part of what we call the early detection rapid response kind of philosophy. If we can find some of these invasives coming in early, we, we can, you know, hopefully get rid of them. And uh, before they've really taken, taken hold and sort of metastasized, if you will. And give us a sense as well, if you would, Brian, I mean, obviously many things get introduced into the country. I mean, do we know how these these things like, you know, end up where they end up? Yeah, ultimately it's people. So pe- people are the, uh, the the vectors of of these species one way or another, at least to get to our general area. So, yeah, through trade, you know, either you know, ornamental or people, you know, are moving soil, people are moving like animal feed and, and all sorts of different ways. People are introducing the species most, mostly by a trade, you know, people moving hay, mulch, and then also just people with their shoes sometimes pick up things, you know, during a lot of the early days, like with whaling and things like that, people actually had their ships full of ballast, which was often stones and and rocks and things like that. And then they just like unload them onto the shore. So, so early on we got, we got species as far as when, um, you know, uh, non-native people started settling the area. Secondarily, robins, starlings, things like that spread some of the berry fruits of these invasives, like the Japanese barberry or the uh, glossy buckthorn. 
and um, bittersweet, you know, Asian bittersweet. And then autumn olive is is another one. And, And autumn olive is an interesting one because it was planted because it was actually thought to be beneficial to birds. And then um, it was, you know, hindsight being 2020, it's really taken off and spread all over the place. And the birds secondarily have been the vector of that one. So the the root cause is humans one way or another. And, and people people love a lot of these plants. You know, some of them are beautiful. The Himalayan balsam is beautiful. Some of the Japanese barberry cultivars are, are beautiful. And so people have also, you know, planted them and cultivated them because they look nice, but they don't stay on the uh, cultivated landscape. And I just wanted to also mention that there are some people trying to breed some sterile versions of some of these, you know, invasive but uh, ornamental plants. Now, another thing I understand is that um, the last time sort of a survey of this nature was undertaken was back in 1959. Why has it taken so long, do you think, for it to, to be updated? Yeah, and this isn't a complete update. I would I would love to do a full comprehensive update someday, but it, it takes a lot of time, a lot of effort. There aren't a huge number of botanists around. Um, you know, there are some, and, and there have been collections since 1959. Many of them, the the curators of the uh, the uh, G.S. Torrey Herbarium at the University of Connecticut, mostly Les Merhoff, who's uh, passed away. And also uh, uh, Bob Capers have done several several collections and it's, uh, there is a tradition there and uh, they have a current curator as well. So there is the University of Connecticut uh, that has done some of these things, but Eastern being in, in Wyndham County, I thought it'd be uh, good to kind of reboot this effort. And uh, you know, it's we only did 319 species. There's uh, many more that we'll look for in the future, hopefully. And I'm guessing it's important to keep these things updated because I think you said at the top of the interview, you know, it's like climate change. And of course, we're seeing this, it appears more rapidly. I mean, we're seeing this with sort of like deforestation of our trees, admittedly, that's, you know, through parasites and bugs. But it, all of this is important, isn't it? Yes. I mean, just trying to figure out, you know, what's here. And also the the native plants really are, are, the, are the base of the ecosystem. They provide the, the food for the pollinators, the, the caterpillars. The caterpillars are providing food for the, the songbirds. And so there's this whole sort of trophic, you know, cascade if, if some of the things, you know, in the base uh, go extinct. So, for example, you know, if there's a plant that's really important to caterpillars, and those caterpillars are very important to songbirds. So if you lose that plant, you lose the caterpillars, and you also lose the birds. So it's important that way. But also just to see, you know, are we getting more southern species? You know, are, are, things, are things, you know, migrating? Or are things just going extinct? So really important to have numbers uh, and species names for comparisons, you know, when we're going through time to look at the past and the future. And I suppose another thing to ask as well about um, all of this is, you know, can the public help at all? Or, or, or you know, is, is the university interested in any help from the public? Because like you said, there's only so much that you can do, but there are a lot of people out there who are very interested in their environment, aren't they? Yeah, there, there's some really interesting citizen science programs right now. I'm not directly involved in any of them. You know, there's there's things called Bud Burst, which is a, a phenology. So um, keeping track of when things 
break uh, bud. And there's also, which, which I do contribute to, um, there's this uh, program called iNaturalist, which I really like. It's not just plants, it's plants, animals, fungi, and it's just it's basically an app on your phone and uh, you can you know, take a photograph and it will suggest an identification for you. And people will upload this and uh, with the location. It's, it's a really neat program. And also it's not considered an uh, official record with iNaturalist, but, but it gives scientists a place to go. And so if there's a record of a species that's never reported from an area, and you see it on iNaturalist, and it's a place that, you know, a, a scientist can get to, the, a scientist may go and collect it and deposit it in a herbarium to make an official record of it. So uh, so iNaturalist is, is a very powerful program. And also, if people are looking to put sort of like flowers and plants in their garden, I mean, would you suggest that they try to obviously purchase more like native plants, or should they have a mixture? I mean, what's the sort of advice uh, there? Yeah, yeah, definitely native plants. And there's several different organizations that, that work on um, native plants. There's a native plant trust out of, um, out of Framingham, Massachusetts, and they, uh, they promote native plants and sell some as well. And then there's different resources on the Connecticut Invasive Plant Working Group website that basically have alternatives to invasive. So it will, you know, have a invasive plant, and then it will give you a native alternative that does same, some of the same jobs on the, on the landscape. And then, um, you know, there, there's several native plant nurseries, you know, in Connecticut and New England that sell, sell native plants. Some, some are very common. You can, you can actually sometimes purchase some species of native plants, you know, like sweet pepper bush at, you know, most uh, local nurseries and, um, and things like that. So, so yes, I, I highly, highly suggest native plants. They're a bit, you know, some are fantastic and, and wonderful to, to anybody. Some native plants are a little more of an acquired taste, but I really like them. And they're, they have to be the right place, plant in the right place. So you do have to, um, you know, know what their requirements are for soil and water and things like that. But they're, they're very important to plants for pollinators and for uh, native insects and birds. And, and I know, uh, based on the information I have in front of me, like it says here, dandelions, most clover and daisies are non-native, but are also not considered invasive. So, I mean, those are quite good still to have in your garden, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, they're kind of neutral, you know, they're, they're not gonna, they're not gonna be problematic. And they do provide some, uh, what are called ecosystem services. So they do you know, hold the soil, they do feed some pollinators, but they, they're probably not as good at providing ecological services as native plants. So they're kind of a, they're, you know, neutral plant. If you have a mix of kind of these, you know, uh, non-native, but um, non-invasive plants, along with, uh, you know, some nice native plants, that, that's fine. I'm not, uh, you know, uh, suggesting that you get rid of everything, but, but the more native plants, the better, in my opinion. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And obviously, now that this has uh, been uh, updated uh, fairly recently by yourself and Lisa Stanley, and obviously the Eastern students, people can be a little bit more aware of what is out there. And uh, it's all helpful information. And uh, we hope it won't be too long again before, obviously, there's uh, some more updates and who knows, possibly some more new finds uh, for you when you go out in the field. Yeah, hopefully we'll get back out there and uh, collect some more and have some more to report soon. Brian Connolly, Assistant Professor of Biology at Eastern Connecticut State University. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you. 
Hey, son, how are you feeling? Uh, I'm fine, Pops. What's on your mind? I just, I can't explain it. Navigating, without a compass, eyes waiting, started to wonder. Metamorphosis, lost of who you thought you is. When your kid can't find the language, help them find the lyrics. Listen to the Sound It Out album and get tips and tools to start a conversation at sounditouttogether.org. Brought to you by Ad Council and Pivotal Ventures. The warmer weather is here and it's time to give your plants some health care. From mulching to aeration to growth regulator, remedial and preventative treatments against fungus as well as insects like the spotted lanternfly and gypsy moth. Don't be reactive, be proactive. and Keep your trees and plants in tip-top condition to avoid long-term health problems. Find more details about plant health care services. Call 860-234-4041 or visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com. Time now for a look at some of the other stories making the headlines in the region recently, sponsored by... Every number tells a story. A true story. Connecticut by the Numbers explores breakthroughs and challenges, issues and answers. Behind the headlines, across the state, follow the numbers. Connecticut news that counts ctnumbers.news. Connecticut is celebrating its first estuary reserve, which will help identify environmental threats to waterways and natural resources within Long Island Sound off the Connecticut coast. Emily Scott from the Connecticut News Service reports. Connecticut's first National Estuarine Research Reserve designates more than 50,000 acres of Long Island Sound, adjacent marshes, and upland areas for research on climate resiliency, water quality, and fish and wildlife habitats. Patrick Cummins of the Connecticut Audubon Society has been a strong advocate for the reserve and says it can be a catalyst for critical conservation activity. The research that sheds light on the strategies within the NER for things like climate resilience and mitigation will not only benefit those species, things like bluefish, salt marsh sparrow, semi-palmated sandpiper within the NER, but will also benefit them wherever they occur, the habitats and the species. Nearly 50 species listed under the Connecticut Endangered Species Act can be found within the reserve. University of Connecticut's Avery Point campus, which will be the research reserve's headquarters. The reserve receives funding from the state and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. I'm Emily Scott. Governor Lamont recently announced that his administration is releasing $7.29 million in state funds to purchase and protect 1,013 acres of open space in 17 Connecticut communities and $276,200 to restore and renew green spaces in six urban areas. The funds are provided through the state's Open Space and Watershed Land Acquisition Grant Program and the Urban Green and Community Gardens Grant Program, which are both administered by the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, or DEEP. Connecticut's preservation of open space has helped define its landscape and preserve its important natural resources and natural beauty, and is one of the main things that makes the state such a great place to call home, Lamont said. These grants continue our open space preservation legacy and will increase the availability and quality of open space for all residents across our state, whether they live in an urban, suburban or rural area. 
Since the Open Space Program began in 1998, more than $150 million in state funding has been awarded to municipalities, non-profit land conservation organisations and water companies to assist in the purchase of more than 41,200 acres of land in order to protect natural resources and improve the quality of life for residents and visitors alike. The Open Space and Watershed Land Acquisition Grant Program assists local governments, land trusts and water companies in purchasing open space using funding from the Community Investment Act and state bond funds. This grant program requires a match by the grant recipient and requires the open space land be protected by a conservation and public recreation easement, ensuring the property is forever protected for public use and enjoyment. The Urban Green and Community Gardens Grant Program provides funding assistance to develop or enhance urban spaces for public enjoyment and or environmental education. In the Connecticut Examiner this week, after two years of hearing live amplified outdoor music coming from Philomena's restaurant in Waterford, a group of neighbours appealed the town's decision to allow the restaurant another summer of outdoor entertainment, which they said has disturbed the quiet enjoyment of their homes. But the Zoning Board of Appeals unanimously upheld the permit and denied the appeal that alleged that Jill Stevens, the town zoning enforcement officer, had not followed regulations when she granted the new temporary outdoor entertainment permit to restaurant owner Michael Buschetto III. The permit allowed outdoor music live at Philomena's from 6 to 9pm on Fridays and Saturdays from May 6th through November 5th, 2022, a total of 54 concerts. The issue said attorney Mark Keppel, who represented the group of neighbours, was the permit was a misinterpretation of Lamont's 2020 executive order that allowed relaxed rules for outdoor dining. Keppel told the board that the order allowed restaurants that already had outdoor entertainment prior to March 2020 to continue, but did not permit restaurants with outdoor entertainment to begin. Keppel said that since 2020, the concerts had been happening illegally without any zoning permit or approval, and the music was very loud in the surrounding neighbourhoods. In the day this week, an elderly New London County woman, the second person to contract Powassan virus infection in Connecticut this year, died of the tick-borne illness last month, the State Department of Public Health recently announced. The department, which withheld the woman's name and town of residence, said she was between 90 to 99 years old. She became ill in early May and was hospitalised with fever, altered mental status, headache, chills, rigours, chest pain and nausea, according to the department, which issued a statement confirming she was the state's second case of Powassan virus-related illness this year. The woman was known to have been bitten by a tick, which was removed two weeks before the onset of symptoms, the department said. Laboratory tests performed at the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Laboratory in Fort Collins, Colorado, confirmed the presence of Powassan virus antibodies. In the Norwich Bulletin this week, as residents grow accustomed to Norwich's downtown roundabout, completed last September, the state plans a string of the circular traffic patterns in the western part of the city. Opinions differ on the state proposal, the first phase of which would replace three intersections with roundabouts along Route 82. A public hearing for the state's proposal will be held at the Kelly Steam Magnet Middle School on June 23rd at 7pm. This will concern the first of two project phases extending from Banas Court to Fairmount Street, expected to be completed in 2026, said Connecticut Department of Transportation Strategic Communications Manager Shannon King. And in the Chronicle this week, in order to better facilitate renovations at Wyndham High School, the Early Childhood Centre classrooms will move out of the high school earlier than planned. 
The move was recommended by the ad hoc Wyndham High School Renovate as new buildings committee. The plan involves moving ECC classrooms out of the high school and into the middle school. Board of Education members were not required to vote on the plan. Early Childhood Centre Director Aliki Karaganis thinks it can be done and she should know because I think she's moved the programme 19 times now so she's pretty good at this but we don't think it's going to have a negative impact said Wyndham Superintendent of Schools Tracy Youngberg. ECC is currently housed in two locations, the middle school, which is at 123 Quarry Street, and the high school, which is at 355 High Street. The plan involves moving the ECC classrooms into a middle school hallway. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at Connecticut-East.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East This Week. And you can listen to the show again on our social platforms on demand and by asking your smart speaker to play Connecticut East This Week podcast. And please like, follow and share on your social media too. I'm Brian Scott Smith. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 